Well, we are continuing on. We started this series a while back. It's called Foundations, and we were taking it from uh, Psalm 11.3, which says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we looked at uh, the way the foundations are being shaken terribly uh, in Western culture, and so I thought, what better place to go to than back to Genesis. And so I began a series, and this is the third message in our mini-series within the series. It's on identity, a biblical perspective. So first we looked at our identity as part of the human race. You might think that's a given, but these days everything's open. And we talked about our identity as being created in the image of God. We looked at our origin, God created us in his image, the Imago Dei. And then last week we looked at our identity, in a more focused sense, as individual identity. Genesis 1.26 pretty much sums it up and provides us with what I call the divine binary. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And of course, that is the binary, male and female. The other chaos surrounding greater gender identity today in the Western world is a a recent development. There's always been anomalies and abnormalities within cultures, but um, what we're experiencing today with gender uh, identities is is relatively recent. I I link the reinterpretation of the noun gender which migrated from meaning the assigned sex at birth, either male or female, to now having meaning that is something entirely different. If you remember what I talked about last week, in the 1950s, gender psychologists who studied differences between the sexes began to reframe gender as something entirely separate from biological sex. Words really matter. And there are a raft of words that are being changed. The meanings are being changed today. Gender was just one of them. In 55, a psychologist was the first to use the word gender to mean something separate from biological sex. He defined a gender role as all the ways a person discloses themselves as being a man or a woman. His name was John Money. In 1964, another psychologist who was an associate of Money asserted that cultures determine gender rather than biology. Cultures determine gender rather than biology. And that same year was the very first time that the term gender identity appeared. 1964 was the first time that gender identity appeared as a term. So this migration in meaning of gender, identifying male and female, to gender identity as a person's internal sense, what they felt like inside of themselves, is a vital transition, no pun intended. It really is. And from the noun being used in a purely objective outward physical marker to become a subjective inward feeling a person might experience, and so by the 1990s, gender began to be seen as being on a spectrum rather than the divine binary, and that a person's gender is not fixed at birth. So it's been completely separated from 
the sex of a person at birth to meaning something that they feel internally. That's their gender. And that's dictated by culture. The Bible presents a totally different perspective, and it does predate the latter part of the 1900s. When looking at Genesis and the text of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the male and female are responsible to come together for which they are physically equipped and their unique creation. And you see that in verse 24 of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Male and female become one flesh. And they're to be fruitful and multiply, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Right after he says, God created man in his own image, verse 27. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we see as one of the primary identifying markers of the male and the female is that they couple, they come together in what we understand as marriage, and they procreate. They replenish the earth, they multiply. In reference to my comments there last week, indicating God's intention for the male and female to come together in marriage and thereby go on to be fruitful and multiply, which simply means they are to procreate. I did not want to leave anyone with the idea that procreation is a rationale for marriage. It's not. And it's not the only aspect of marriage. We'll get into that more today. Dennis Hollinger, in his work on Christian ethics and the moral life, makes a statement that protects such an overemphasis from taking place when he says this, quote, The conjugal bond of marriage is not merely for consummation. It is intended by God to be the ongoing affirmation of the husband and wife's unique union. That's so important. It's the ongoing affirmation of the husband and wife's unique union. Marriage is very, very special. And it is basically normal. It is the normal course of things. This is not a slam on singleness because I believe that there is a gift of signalness. But the truth of the matter is the, the normal outworking of the male and female is that they come together in marriage and that is a very special union. We're going to talk about that today. What does he mean that the husband and wife's relationship is a unique union? Well, here we have an even more focused idea of identity designated as either married or unmarried. And I turn to the Bible for understanding of these two spheres of life because I'm aware of the two verses that I left you with last week. The first one, and it is almost a default position due to our fallenness ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and that sin passing on from generation to generation. This is the mindset that we battle against, Judges 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And extrapolating the principle of that, there is no sovereign in people's lives who deny and reject God they become their own God, and so they do what is ever right 
you know, seems to be right in their own eyes. And I coupled it with Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right, self-deception, which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So there are ways that people come up with to identify their gender, and it seems right to them, but it could very well be deception, and it could very well end in death. Now, you understand that these things are so contrary to our situation today, everywhere. But I just want to add one more verse to those two, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Uh, How do we determine whether we're being self-deceived or not? There's only one way. It's by the Word of God. He is our Creator. He created us in His image. Male and female, He created them. And He has laid out what our distinctive roles are within marriage, outside of marriage, as human beings. It's all contained in this book. And when you reject this, you get what we have (laughs) everywhere around us. So lean not on your own understanding, Proverbs says, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. We said that man's purpose, according to the catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The way we glorify God is we reflect his image that he created us in. That's glorifying to God. And when our paths are straight, and I'm not talking about straight or gay, let me make that differentiation, because listen, today, all bets are off. I have to go back to the very definition of simple words in order to help people to understand what I'm saying. So making your paths straight, which God promises to do if you trust in him and in the word that he's revealed himself through, If you trust in him, he'll make your path straight. means that you will be glorifying him. You will be in line with what he calls truth, which is another word for reality. It's another way of saying that we're glorifying God. That is, we will reflect his image when our ways are straight. And this is to remind us that as fallen creatures, our hearts can and often do deceive us. Jeremiah 17, 9. Okay, I know that we've been given new hearts as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That regeneration takes place and we have a heart that is of flesh and not of stone. We have a different heart. But that's not to say that that fallenness doesn't tug on us every single day. Read Romans chapter 7 and the struggle that we face as Christians every day. The things I want to do, I don't do, and the very things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) Take me home, Jesus, right? Okay. So I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at this first. Let me read you our foundational verses uh, that establish the truth that I want to be talking about. Then we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In, first, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man 
In his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then down, if you look at chapter 2, and we'll start at, let's start at 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib from which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, this is after he looked at Adam alone, after he had named all the animals and None were found to be a suitable helpmate for him. And so God put him to sleep and took a rib from him. And it says that God made a woman and then he brought her to the man. Verse 23, and the man said, whoa. (laughs) That's uh, in the Hebrew, you can't see it there. But it's an exclamation mark. Wow, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now before we read 1 Corinthians 7, I want you to understand that this is an incredible pressure when you talk about the marriage relationship for me to preach on Ephesians chapter 5, right? How many messages have you heard on Ephesians 5? Women, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Good stuff. Very, very important, right? But today, I'd like to take a different track with you. Following any train of thought and the scriptures we've been facing in our Genesis 1 and 2 study, I already painted out and pointed out the link between the identification of the man and woman being male and female and the fact that they are to be uh, fruitful and multiply as part of their identity. And I've chosen 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 to look deeper into that aspect of the identity of married people. And so with that, I would like to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except for agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text this morning, we would ask you that you'd open the eyes of our understanding that we might be able to examine our own hearts and see where we fit into things. We we desire, Lord, we we talk about repenting and we talk about reclaiming our land and that that, that, uh, uh, a, a total revival would take place, Lord. But Father, it begins in, in our own hearts first. And Lord, so help us to just listen and to apply the scriptures as appropriate, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So some background on 1 Corinthians uh, 7.1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Stop there. 
because as I did background research on this portion of Scripture, I was under the impression that this was Paul's statement here, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is not the case. That is actually what the Corinthians had written to him. And he says as much. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, being it is not good for a man to touch a woman, and then he begins to teach on it. Okay, so that's the first aha moment that I had this week. (laughs) I love the scriptures. I've read that scripture over so many times. And until you dig down and start taking it apart and looking at the backgrounds and the context and everything, you, you just don't understand what the scriptures mean. So, context provides the meaning, and the greater context for 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 has to include Paul's teaching on immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, it's all about immorality. Because the Corinthian church was immoral. They were committing sin that isn't even mentioned amongst Gentiles, where a man would have his own father's wife. So we're we're looking at a, a, a case here of a church, a church, that were practicing immorality, and Paul begins that teaching by quoting a common saying in Corinth. Here's another saying that he's responding to. The whole first um, epistle is written in response to something they had written Paul, and here's one of their sayings. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Then Paul goes in to explain, wait, wait. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Wait a second here. How does that work with verse 12? Well, it works with verse 12 because Paul was quoting one of their common sayings that they had amongst themselves, and they were using it as a foil for immorality. He says, ah, 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 and in the rest of the chapter, he, he corrects their misunderstanding. He goes on, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So not only is he looking at you know, the, the body and the use of the body, and he says um, the Lord is for the body, and now God has not only raised up the Lord, but he'll also raise us up. So somehow or other he's talking about our physical body is important. Okay, it's going to be raised in the last day. And he combines his, his rebuke of the immorality that was being practiced by the Corinthians with the resurrection that we're all going to experience as believers. This is pretty startling stuff. Verse 15, do you not know that your body, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Uh Uh-oh, we're right back in Genesis, aren't we? The two shall be one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. And therefore, glorify God 
right? Reflect God with what? In your body. (laughs) So he rolls right into chapter 7 from that. And you can't divorce it from that. That's basically the context that he was writing in. First, Paul states that the common saying that they said is, you know, hey, we have liberty, but we can't use that liberty, okay? And then he follows it up with another saying in verse 13, and then he closes with his pronouncement that the body is not for immorality, as he explains to the Corinthians that in some way our bodies are linked with Christ, a truth that will become more clear at the resurrection. Verse 14, I don't understand all this. All I get is, is the, the mountaintops, the peaks of what he's saying. He doesn't get into detail on this. So Paul's teaching right before 7.1 was all about immorality and how they need to flee immorality because every other sin is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Corinth was a very liberal and immoral place. It was like Minneapolis. Not St. Paul. You know, I've always been upset because when I travel, people say, where are you from? And I say, St. Paul. And they say, where is that? And I say, have you heard of Minneapolis? And they say, yeah. It's like Minneapolis takes the crown all the time. Well, I'm willing to let them take the crown in this. St. Paul is the capital, don't ever forget it. But Corinth was a really liberal and immoral place, and men, including married men, were entangled with concubines, not unlike many men who are captive to pornography today. It was acceptable. You see, the Temple of Venus, the goddess of love, was located on the Arco Corinth, which is Upper Corinth, which is a monolithic overhang, overseeing the entire city of Corinth in Greece. And that temple housed 1,000 priestesses. And their employment was to be consecrated bondservants. That's actually their name. And they served as temple courtesans or courtesans to facilitate idolatrous worship. To have relations with a courtesan was so common in Corinth that the practice came to be called Corintha, uh, Corinthianize, to Corinthianize. Okay, this, this city was rank. Many believers had formerly been involved in such immorality, and, and it was hard for them to break with the old ways and easy to fall back into them. Houses of prostitution were widespread in the Greek, uh, Greco-Roman uh, world, and, and they were generally looked upon as a social necessity, a social necessity indicating how depraved and distorted their godless minds had become. That's Corinth. Now, contrary to many popular interpretations of 7.1, the verse is not promoting celibacy. That's what many people would say. Uh, 7.1 is promoting celibacy. Now, concerning things about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And he's talking about being celibate. The context would seem to indicate that the quote from the Corinthians was not saying anything about whether one should be married or not, but rather having everything to do with the practice of some who were married and what they were doing, or more appropriately, what they were not doing. Follow my train of thought here. The word in the Greek, haptomai, translated not touch, 
in verse 1, appears in other places as a euphemism for marital relations. In the tribal uh, group that we were with, Mary and I, with, they, they talked about eating off the same plate. Took us a long time to figure out what they were talking about. They were using it as a euphemism. And here, this is a euphemism. You can also see that in Genesis 26, Ruth 2.9, Proverbs 6.29, this euphemism is used to touch, to touch. It seems some had taken Paul's strong teaching on immorality and they overreacted with a sort of hyperasceticism and they practiced abstinence within marriage. That's what the context of this text is that I'm reading to you. Married people were practicing abstinence. One writer says, abstinence was widely viewed as a means to personal wholeness and religious power. So this is not beyond the Corinthians to want to have power, right? They had all those, those um, miracle gifts that they were practicing out of line. And Paul talks about them in 14 and 15, verses 13, 14, and 15 about the misuse of the gifts. It was all power grab. They wanted to be something. And so here, they're taking this asceticism of restraining themselves in their marriage union as an aesthetic value that they thought was valuable. So Paul is not addressing celibacy here, at least not in verse 5. And he says, practicing abstinence within marriage is not wise And beginning in verse 2, he begins to explain why. Um, 2 and 3, let's look at 2 and 3. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. And the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. But is a contrast. But is a contrast. That's another reason that I believe that this is not talking about celibacy. It's talking to married couples. And something that they had picked up that was wrong, and Paul's correcting it because he takes verse 1 and he contrasts it with verse 2. But, contrasting the practice of false asceticism with what Paul described as a unique relationship within marriage. And his use of the personal pronoun his and her own points to the proper relationship in a marriage. Paul identifies a duty that marriage partners have toward one another in 7.3 by way of admonition. This is an admonition from the apostle to the church at Corinth. Addressing the husband's duty toward his wife first, but is reciprocal and balanced as the wife also has a duty toward her husband. And the intention of the apostle is obvious. The regular fulfillment of this duty, one with the other, will ward off immorality doesn't completely stop immorality, but it is a preventative, it is a caution, and it wards off. The word duty is taken from the world of banking. It was often found in Koine Greek, referring to the payment of debts. Okay, Fulfilling a debt is a biblically prescribed way married couples function. It's a vital, it's a vital part of their identity as being married, that special union that we have as married people. Now, verse 4 says the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. We began with humans created in the image of God, as male and female, expected to marry and be fruitful. And the marriage 
and in the marriage, they glorify and reflect God by paying their debt to one another. It's kind of a whole new way of looking at things, isn't it? It's a privileged position to be married. God looked at Adam and said, it's not good, this guy's alone. That's why I say it's the normal course of things, although there is a gift of singleness. I don't deny that. But the normal outworking of things, it's not good for the man to be alone. He created Eve for the man. Now, the stress in verse 4 is not a dominant role over the other, but rather the fact of the relinquishing of authority over his or her own body. It's totally opposite than demands being made on the other. It's the relinquishing of our authority over our own bodies that Paul's talking about. It's not you owe me proposition, but rather I owe you. Not you owe me, but I owe you. And to keep within the banking context of payment of debts. Now I said we were going to be looking at our identity and narrowing the focus from individuals to couples joined in marriage, and this is part of our marriage identity according to the Bible. Think of the marriage covenant. It is a unique union we formed when we committed ourselves to one another in marriage. And one reason it's unique is because it, it, it's the only relationship, the only relationship wherein such union is biblical. That's how unique it is. The only relationship. So the Bible's prescription is not only heterosexual, monogamous, and lifelong marriage advocated, but the proper responsibilities of each partner is affirmed. And this is our identity in marriage. Now look at verse 5. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control, self-control. Verse 5 opens with a prohibition that is emphatic. It's emphatic. The grammar shows this prohibition to be a present imperative. That means they're doing something, and it's ongoing. And Paul says, stop it. Every time I think of stop it, I think of the, the new heart skit on biblical count, or on counseling where a woman comes to him and she says, I just am so afraid of death and everything. I see myself in a coffin all the time and everything. And his advice to her as a counselor was, stop it. <laughs> just stop it. It's great. You can get it on YouTube and you'll never see stop it again without thinking of it. But that's what Paul said, stop it. It's a present imperative. And it simply means it's something that's already in progress should now be stopped. The Greek negative is at the front of the sentence, which, which highlights, don't do this. Now, the verb for the English word deprive means to refuse, to abstain from, to rob, or to withhold. Bdag, which is uh, Brown, Driver, and Griggs, it's a lexicon for Greek. It says to cause another to suffer loss by taking away through illicit means, to rob, to steal, to despoil, to defraud. Secondary meaning is to prevent someone from having the benefit of something. This is a pretty precise word, isn't it? Stop depriving one another. It's the definition of deprive. Now, while there's no room in marriage for demands, neither is there an allowance for individuals 
enforced abstinence. You don't do that in marriage. That's not what you're supposed to do in marriage. When Paul told the Corinthians to stop depriving one another, his primary meaning was that they stopped practicing a false sense of asceticism because that is not the only reason deprivation takes place in a marriage. Okay? Now, contextually and historically, he's talking to the church at Corinth who were given to going to the temple and participating in temple rites there. But I think that revenge can also be a meaning for deprivation. Manipulation to obtain the desired result can be a reason for uh, deprivation in a marriage. Punishment, often used as punishment. And selfishness, to name just a few examples that might motivate the very thing the Bible says marriages are to stop. Now, I believe Paul's prohibition covers them all because of the simple exception Paul uses. Perhaps there is a pressing issue that the couple is facing. He says, except for, okay? Here's his exception. Maybe they're facing economic struggles and stress. Possibly with their children. They're having struggles with their children, raising their kids, or any other extenuating circumstances that demands their focus to be on praying together. My view on fasting in the New Testament and for believers is that it's a heightened time of focus. Where it, I, I used to always say that when I fast like that, that I'm making it official with God. I'm showing him I'm really serious about this, God. Please hear my prayers. And so I would fast. I think it, it's kind of similar here. It, it, it's a focused time of prayer. And so they're setting aside the normal function of their marriage so that they can pray more focused, because they are to devote themselves to prayer together. But even in such a case, the abstination or abstention is by mutual agreement. Do you see this together in this idea? Everywhere here. Union, mutual agreement, and only for a time indicative of a short time. Why? Well, he goes on to explain two reasons. The devil will tempt, and because you have a lack of self-control. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He created us. And a normal, healthy, and beneficial practice of coming together again is promoted. He says, go back to being normal. Go back to doing what you do as married couples because that is the gift of marriage. And it's a unique privilege that you experience. Paul listed two reasons. Stop depriving one another. One, the devil's temptation. Number two, the lack of self-control. Regarding the devil's temptation, one commentator said, if the mutual giving of each other is the essence of a union where God has joined two individuals together, then Satan will do anything and do his worst in inhibiting, spoiling, and robbing it of its purity and its fulfilling potential. Satan is always active in marriage to quench shared prayer, and to reduce the joys, the unique relationship within marriage, to his own debased level. We have an enemy. He's an enemy of our souls. And as married people, he's an enemy of our marriage. Now, regarding a lack of self-control, to have self-control is the idea of holding oneself in, the ability to take grip of oneself. It's self-control proceeding out from within oneself. That's what it means. And it's also a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the gifts. 
But you don't do it by yourself. For the believer, it's only possible by depending on the supernatural power of the indwelling spirit because his self-control is a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, of yielding to the Holy Spirit, not to the works of the flesh. Now, the Corinthians were still spiritual infants, and Paul admonished them, quit ye like men. That's King James Version. (laughs) You are mere men. You are mere men. You are babes. I can't even talk to you like mature people. You're babes living their lives in dependence on their fleshly control, self-control, which doesn't stand a chance against the strong impulses for gratification of the flesh that emanates from our fallenness. But you don't need to be a spiritual babe to sin. So he says, stop depriving one another. It's really emphatic. Now, this next section is kind of a, an aside. Relationship precedes relations. Relationship precedes relations, married people. Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, brings wisdom to us regarding the moral and more delicate elements in marriage. Scattered throughout the text is the idea of togetherness. Read this text over again and see how often he alludes to this togetherness, this union which is special in marriage. The union of the marriage relationship is stressed even when the physical aspect of it is set aside. It is by mutual agreement. And there's one thing that men do not often understand that women know intuitively, that relationship precedes relations. Togetherness is the glue that holds the marriage together. Emotional togetherness is important before physical togetherness can truly be enjoyed. And the makeup of men and women are different. We're different. And although that is being destroyed today, the emotional togetherness is vital in a marriage relationship due to a lack of... In this area, many have chosen to go against Paul's admonition and instead deprive one another because they don't have that togetherness. They don't have that relationship. So relations suffer. And it leads to a myriad of problems, many of which can be completely alleviated simply by heeding Paul's admonition. Now, there is no allowance biblically for relations outside of marriage. I'll say it one more time. There is no allowance biblically for relations outside of marriage. Do you like how I'm skirting language here? I've, I've really worked hard at this, okay? The Bible calls such relations adultery. If you're in a marriage relationship and you have relations outside of that, that's called adultery, right? Which is clearly forbidden. But what percent of divorces have come as a result of depriving one another and the ensuing temptation and capitulation to that temptation so that Satan tempted and they fell? Paul says it's to protect against immoralities. Now I want to just talk about the Bible's message for the single. What about single persons? Does Everyone have to be married? Well, I said it's normal. That's the normal. And it doesn't mean you're abnormal if you're not. It means that you have a special gift from God. That's all. God's word is not silent here. In fact, in the same passage, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses signalness in the area of three unique forms that it might take, the unmarried, the widows, and the divorced. All of those may be a reason for singleness. Unmarried, of course, is you're young, you haven't gotten married yet, or you haven't found the person yet, you're not married yet. Widows are 
your spouse died. And the divorced, in some situations, a person left you single. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, you're single. And the Bible makes no concessions when it comes to intimate relations. The single are to remain chaste. That's an old word for pure. The single are to remain chaste or pure. Whether they have not yet married, they are to remain chaste until they are married. And if one has become a widow, they are to remain chaste unless they remarry in the Lord. And the divorced person must also remain chaste. (laughs) I prayed long and hard before giving this message this morning. This is so contrary to our culture. And believe me, our culture seeps into our thinking, people. And so we really need to be careful. We need to be willing to look at ourselves head on and make the adjustments that need to be made. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9, let me read that very quickly to you. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, and this is Paul speaking, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So he opens the door for singleness here. And he says, I wish everybody were single like I am. And that's why a lot of people interpret uh, verse 1 as being Paul's statement here, not to touch a woman because that was Paul's experience, etc. But verse 8 says, And to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There again, it moves into the normal thing, because most have such a lack of self-control with the urges of the physical body, which God created us with, incidentally. This is not a bad thing. But there is only one avenue in which those urges can be fulfilled, and that is in the context of a marriage. He says in verse 28 that it's good for those who are single to remain single from his perspective, because they will avoid trouble. Look at verse 28. He says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. (laughs) The Taliabo did not practice polygamy. But there were a couple guys that thought they would venture into that area. Seriously. It just wasn't a normal practice. And... Um, one of the guys was a believer. And they always took younger wives. They never took older wives than the wives that they had. And I asked him, I said, uh, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, you know, I'm, I have two women. I'm married to two women. I said, he said, what do I do? I said, well, I took him to, first, or to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and I said, this is how you need to treat them, both of them. And we started talking a little bit more, and I said, when did you get married to this younger one? He said, We never really got married. Not even by their own cultural standards. Okay? And I said, you're not married? He said, no. I said, then that's adultery. You need to repent of that right now. Which he did. And a younger man married that woman, and they lived happily ever after. But my question to him actually was, why would you want to? (laughs) I know that's a very sexist very Italian thing to say, but it's like, wow. Paul says, if you're married, you're going to have trouble. Why? Not because it's a woman, 
Because she's got trouble too. And it takes us away from fully serving the Lord, fully being devoted to the Lord. Why? Because each has needs. And part of those needs are that debt, that duty. Okay? So, you know, we need to think about this. So one of the reasons, he says, remain single is to avoid trouble. The second reason is they'll have opportunity for undistracted devotion to the Lord, verses 34 and 35. Read them. It says, and, and his interests are divided, the married person. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul was all about serving the Lord. Lock, stock, and barrel, 1,000%, as he did. But he realized that marriage is, there's your duty to one another that needs to be fulfilled. Christopher Yuan says in his book, uh, it's an excellent book if you want to get it, called Holy Sexuality, in which he coined the term holy sexuality. Holy sexuality consists of two paths, and I love it because he says, enough of all this confusion. The Bible is really clear. There's only two paths, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Boom. And I just, I underlined that, I circled it, I put asterisks by it and said, this is good. It's so simple. But we have clouded that whole thing. Now, I, I want to talk about a word, just a word about sanctified relations. We've been dealing with the biblical teaching on identity and how we as God's creation might reflect him through our identifying with his declared identity, whether it be human, individually as male or female, and in marriage as husband and wife. I think it's safe to say that we are 100% tracking when it comes to our corporate identity as human beings. Nobody's disputing that, at least not in our group. Now, there are some furries out there that are going to the far extreme, and they no longer declare themselves to be human beings, but they're furries. I don't even want to go there, but that's how far, you know, the psyche can go when you take off all restraints. But I think we pretty much all agree we're humans. We subscribe to that fully and are not struggling with our identity as human beings. And married couples, our identity as married couples... Are we sincerely reflecting God as we live out our marriages? Remember, our marriage is supposed to be a picture between Christ and his church. And so there's that whole element as well from Ephesians chapter 5. But first, let me say that I think Paul's admonition is one that married people need to truly take to heart. Because examining where our marriages are with this aspect of our identity within the marriage bond, and whether we are glorifying God within the sacred bond, as defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is an important concept. A healthy, fruitful marriage is one that takes Paul's admonition to heart and obeys his singular prohibition to stop depriving one another. Okay? For whatever reason, we must pray that God will help us to stop it. And if we've fallen into the trap of the Corinthians that had begun to practice that behavior, his admonition is stop it. Change it. It's not what you were created for in marriage. Now, in Paul's day, it was the immorality of that culture that allowed pagan temples to have concubines, and as part of that, 
acceptable worship and societal acceptance was there. And many were taken in by it and struggled with the temptation even after they were married. Otherwise, why would Paul have given the prohibition? Now today, we have two enemies which have gone far to destroy marriages. One is feminism. Feminism with the underlying idea that men are too domineering, toxic masculinity, Okay, you'll, you'll hear these terms. And women have a right to their own bodies. Okay? That is something that goes contrary to what Paul just said. You do not have authority over your own body in a marriage. Okay? But feminism creeps in. Just like the next thing that I'm talking about creeps in. And it cuts and undercuts what God has declared as normal for the marriage union. So that one area is uh, feminism, which can lead to feeling completely comfortable disobeying God's prohibition. Why? Because the whole culture is responding to it, and it, it, it impacts the way we think, right? The second area is pornography, which is accessible everywhere, everywhere. Now, it's no uh, shock to you that I watch Fox News, right? I have it on my phone. Um, I'm thinking of trying to get rid of it, but I don't know where to go, BBC or, you know, maybe just don't listen to news anymore. But on my, my Fox News feed, I've got these pictures of girls coming up. It's like, what is up with this? Mary said, I don't have that. I said, you're not a man. AI knows who I am. You know, it's like, give me a break. So it's everywhere present. And, and, those of you with young children, man, watch what they're watching. Watch what they're doing on their computers and their phones. Like the temple concubines in contemporary culture, pornography is an acceptable practice, not within the church. I'm not giving it a wash. I'm just saying in, in secular culture. And the statistics are staggering. And such engagements bring men to easily lay aside Paul's prohibition. After all, there is no need for relationship there before relations. Did you hear me? There's no need for a relationship prior to relations. And that relationship building is hard work for men, not for women. No need to communicate or initiate relationship. It's easy, but that's sin. And sin, in either case, does not glorify God. We would be living outside of our God-given identity as husband and wife. <laughs> now, when it comes to individual identity and the divine binary, there may be some who struggle with this, even in our own church here, with gender being now placed on an ever-expanding continuum, which may include male and female, but slides all the way to anyone's wildest imagination it is inevitable that some confusion will follow. And because it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere in our culture, we can expect that some of our young people are going to struggle with this. Young people, I want to tell you, if you struggle with this, let's talk. Let's talk, okay? It's okay to talk. The world's made such inroads into our minds and hearts and culture that many young people really question their gender identity and the confusion is real and it is a struggle and we cannot deny that it exists, nor should we shun those who are wounded in a sociological war on virtue and who suffer such struggles. Can't shun them. We can't act as though they're second-class citizens. Rather, we need to show sincere love and sensitive love 
as we bring the truth of God's word to bear about identity. Talk to them about identity, the very things we're talking about in Foundations. In a world that blurs the lines of morality into every shade of gray, we must realize that biblical sexuality is more black and white than we think. And I've been trying to express that in this series on identity. The chant, we're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children, is no idle chant, folks. It's not an empty sentiment, and we better wake up and take people at their word. You ever notice how evil and wickedness actually tells us what they're going to do before they do it? This is what's happening. Stand up. But even if we must confront, we need to do so in love. And only heartfelt with the Holy Spirit, hearts that are filled with the Holy Spirit, will be able to do so in a tone and with an attitude that displays the love of God. Proverbs 12, 18 says, it's only the fool who speaks rashly. And Proverbs 18 says, it's like thrusts of a sword. How do you talk with people about these things? But the wise ponders how to answer, Proverbs 15, 28. And always remembering Proverbs 14, 23 through 25. It says this, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, and they're sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. <laughs> but verse 25 goes on to say this, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. It's prefaced with loving interaction. And then it says, but be careful, because there's a way that seems right to man, the way we feel, and it could be totally wrong, and it could end up in death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the bluntness of your word that you don't pull punches. You say exactly what you mean, and you mean exactly what you say. And Father, uh, help us to wean ourselves from the culture, as difficult as that is. We live in the culture, but we do not need to be part of the culture. We don't have to be like the Amish and make a big thing out of it but we surely can practice uh, the Christian virtues in a way that is pleasing in your sight. And Father, it's not harmful to the secular culture around us. So Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, we pray. And thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.